We need to address loneliness. It is literally killing us. But more and more, the research is telling us that there are real health consequences of loneliness. Results in a 29% increased risk of heart diseases. That's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes every day. The problem is that more and more people are lonely today. In fact, it's almost one in three. We must connect to people. We must engage with people. Time and time and time and time again, it's community that saves us. My name is Rachel Abel, and this is The Missing Piece. I'm a leadership specialist and community builder at UNSW, and I'm also known as Head of Making Friends. The most important thing to me here at the uni is to make sure our 60,000 students feel connected, that they belong, they matter. In our now hyper-connected world, we're facing a loneliness epidemic which is taking a serious toll on our health and our well-being, and could be the next economic and public health crisis. Working at a university, I've come across so much research that points to community as the missing piece to helping solve this very real issue. But building community is really hard. So I thought I'd go out into the real world and interview the likely and the not so likely experts about how they build their communities. I'd like to share with you what we've learnt and what the science says about how to build open and sustainable communities that boost connection and reduce loneliness. Why? We believe community really is the key to future-proofing education and also your business, our public services and personal relationships because belonging is better. To have a sense of community, we need to feel that we belong. My job as head of making friends at the University of New South Wales in Sydney is to help give more than 60,000 students that sense of belonging. But that's something that's easier said than done. It can be really challenging to foster belonging and community, as we all know there's a lot more flexibility and opportunities for students to engage with education in different ways whether that's watching a lecture recording from the comfort of their sofa or even taking their entire degree online. In fact, many students these days don't even need to come onto a campus anymore. So today, I really wanted to talk to Dr. David Kellerman. David is a senior lecturer in the field of mechanical and manufacturing engineering here at UNSW Sydney. 100% of his engineering students report that they feel part of a learning community. And this is an amazing accomplishment. By getting creative, harnessing available resources, including AI bots, David Kellerman is collaborating with big tech companies and has cultivated an exceptional community in his cohort. Research tells us that students who feel a sense of belonging at university perform better academically and experience an increased sense of self-worth and well-being, which is why our mantra is hashtag belonging is better. Community psychology pioneer Seymour Saracen has described a sense of belonging as essentially our experience of being personally involved in an environment or system which makes us feel that we're an integral part of it. However, organisations, policymakers and education providers alike are still looking for answers to how to achieve this. We can all take inspiration from David's story on how to innovate and use what's readily available to us in a creative way to foster that sense of belonging in our communities. So David, 
We both work at UNSW Sydney and I've been really keen to talk to you ever since I heard how you were introducing innovative practice to your teaching here and also since our first conversation where you started just explaining to me a little bit how you've been using technology and all sorts of methods to really increase that sense of connection between your students and support their learning. Um, so thank you so much for sharing some of your time. Thank you for having um, me, Rachel. I hear that all 500 students in your course report that they feel part of a learning community. So 100% of students feel yes. part of a learning community. And that is a really, that's an exceptional response, I think, from a, a really big class of students. Um, and we know, because we work here, that there's 65,000 students at UNSW. So um, we also know that it's really, really difficult for students to find that connection. So first of all, how have you managed to do that? How have you, what, what, what are the things that you've been doing in your course to build that sense of connection? And why is it important? Well, so that is a very complex question because uh, a lot of people, I think in education, are looking for silver bullets. Yeah, They want to say, oh, you just do this. Oh, all I had to do was flip the classroom or all I had to do was buy this piece of software or whatever. Um, it is a very, very deep and complex experience that is fundamentally rooted, I think, in the concept of value and care, which is that we need to provide value for the students, reasons to engage, reasons to be there. We need to provide genuine care for the students, but also uh, very importantly, um, we need to motivate the students. They have to be inspired. So if you look at a course from a pedagogical point of view, and there's a lot of research that has supported this thesis, there's no real difference in the cognitive load of learning something, whether you were reading it out of a book in the year 1920 or watching a fancy $20,000 15-minute YouTube video in the year 2018. There's okay. no real difference in the cognitive load. Yep. So we need to inspire, we need to build community, we need to build practice, and we have to constantly motivate that with, with value and care. So why is it important that students are motivated? So if it's, if it's when you say there's no difference in cognitive load, that means that there's, there's nothing essentially different between reading that big, heavy engineering book 100, 200 years ago and the way that students are engaging now in terms of how they're, they're learning. So why is it that then that extra motivation is so important for student learning? Well, because they have to want to do it, right? They have to be interested in what they're doing. You know, we uh, receive so many students today from high school who already know how to program a 3D printer, who already know how to use an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi or already know how to program in different languages. And they can do all of this stuff because they're interested. And so... What is the value of the institution? Uh, I think that you could go back as little as 20 years ago and say, well, you come to a university and you've got these fantastic, you've got world-class lecturers and you've got a library with millions of dollars, 14 floors of different books, and you have all of these resources there. It's a hub of knowledge. Mm, well, sure. the hub of knowledge today is the internet. And knowledge has become devalued. It's not really very important anymore. 
um, practice understanding these are the things that are valuable today. And so in an age now where somebody can actually really go and learn anything they want to on their own, what is the value of coming to a university? And it is to be part of a community. It is to have a, a shared experience, whether you're on campus or on the internet. It doesn't matter. You can still have a shared experience. And it's to be inspired to do something. So, you know, that's actually arguably a much bigger responsibility than it, what it used to be, which is to motivate and inspire our students and build communities. And then do you think when they get to university, and we know, I mean, we know some of this because the students tell us they're very excited before they get here. When they land at university, is it meeting their expectations? Is that, you know, are they getting that level of inspiration, do you think? Mm. Or are we kind of falling short and we need to do more to really meet that expectation? So a colleague of mine, Jose Bilbao, who's a fantastic educator, did a really wonderful bit of research with his students, which is he asked them to just write words in week one about how they felt. And then he repeated this somewhere around the middle of the semester. And the words at the beginning were excited and enthusiastic and, you know, all of these words about how uh, excited they were about this concept that they're beginning a journey and there's all, I'm at a university, I'm I'm a little fish in a big bowl all of a sudden and then around mid-semester it's stress anxiety worry concern and the weight of that experience has fallen on them so it's really simple right what do we want to do we want to maintain excitement and enthusiasm and motivation you can't do that if you are having a uh consumer experience that is monolithic it can't be here is a student logging into a website downloading a pdf watching a canned video learning content on their own in a room a lot of students don't come to campus anymore it's just a fact we all talk about you know telecommuting not having to be at work and so all of that fleeters away so yeah, that is the big challenge. That is the grand challenge of higher education in the 21st century. I'm curious as to what first sparked, because you're an amazing teacher, um, but what first sparked your your own motivation for wanting to really engage with the students? Was it because you had an incredible experience yourself with teachers at school or at university was it something else? Was there a moment when you really realised I need to be doing more to engage these students because I'm, I'm not doing enough to keep them interested in what they're learning? So I am a pure blood engineer, if you will. So my dad was an engineer and my brothers are engineers. And I... From a family, a long lineage of engineers. Yes. Not entirely, though. Yep. And, I, and I will say that I think my... Um, my two secret advantages are one that my mum is and has always been an artist and I've learned, you know, parts of that from her. And secondly, that my wife is a philosopher. But in terms of engineering, what I really want to say is I'm super passionate about it, right? Like I think engineering is amazing. Like I want to tell my students and I do 
imagine this. You all in this room, you own the future. You're engineers. You get to design and build everything that's next. New aeroplane, new car, new phone, new technology, new anything. That's your discipline. But you also have a big responsibility. You have to solve the world's problems. And this is this is about inspiring and empowering them. So I feel mm. that way myself. Mm. And so as an educator, I want to impart the level of optimism, enthusiasm and empowerment that I feel in my own particular discipline. As David has been discussing, passion and motivation are essential ingredients in community building. We've all heard the saying, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And this is backed by research. Organisational performance expert Richard Chang tells us that passion inspires us to work harder, with the best bit being that we hardly notice our effort. A 2015 study found teachers' enthusiasm and passion to be positively related to students' motivation. In education, passion and motivation encourage students to engage, and when students are engaged, they thrive, and are more likely to feel that they belong. In a preliminary study of student thriving, Dr. Laurie Schreiner advises educators to communicate their own passion and stimulate interest among students. Community development gurus Kretzmann and McKnight remind us that development must start from within the community. This relies on community members' commitment to investing themselves and their resources in the common effort. Researchers found that motivated communities are more accomplished and successful and a paper in the European Journal of Business Management points to a positive relationship between motivation and effectiveness in organisational communities. So passion literally pays off. You can hear that David is passionate about what he does and he uses that passion effectively to inspire active investment from his students. Whatever your role, letting your passion show and encouraging motivation is an excellent way to engage your community members and make your community more effective. I like being in universities because I love the optimism and the potential that we have in these institutions. But where did that really start for me? It was to do with taking over a very, very big course in civil engineering, 550 people. Yeah. I, took, I took it over halfway through the semester, so week six or seven, mm. walk in, hello everyone, my name is David. And I looked at the experience they were having and it was a very different experience to what I had had learning the same material 20 years ago, which is the number of students had tripled and the level of community had essentially evaporated into almost nothing. Is it easier, do you think, to create that sense of community when you have the smaller classes and some of the challenge is in the volume now? There's more people on the planet. There's more people who we want to give the opportunity and access to ed education to. But then the challenge is how do you then replicate that really small mm. group feeling and, and that connection at scale? So it's not just about scale. There are 
just as many classes with 120 as there were when I did the courses. But what I would like to point out is that I did my degree through a very important period, which is 2000 to 2003, and that is when we saw the genesis of the learning management system. Now, this is a very, very small and subtle step, and it looks great. You go, oh, yeah, you've gone from this pointless process of transcribing something off the board to just downloading it, and there you go. Much more Mm. efficient, isn't it? But there is a modal change that happens, which is that you go from being on campus, being in the lecture theatre and doing something that is active for, for as bad as it is to just simply copy something off the board, mm. there is some active component to the fact that you're in the room and you're copying it down. Now, if you can't make it to the lecture that day, you've got to get your notes off your friend, right? So yeah. you're in a community. Yeah. Now, you make this little modal change, you log into a website, you download the PDF. You're now a consumer. Okay, there's no active component in this anymore. You don't need to talk to anybody. You don't need to borrow somebody else's notes. You're not thinking about what you're writing as you're copying the notes. Roughly speaking, you can extrapolate that experience to the learning management system platform today. That's what it is. Which, if people don't know, is the basis of everything that we do, the way that we teach at at universities these days. Everybody's got a learning management system. Primary schools have got learning management systems now. High schools have got learning management systems. So the students are all getting all of their learning materials from that platform. Right. So log into a website, read this PDF, watch this video, do this multi-choice quiz. Now, we have students today that say things like, if I died... I don't think anyone would notice. Wow. Now, that's pretty scary. Yeah. But you know what's even scarier is some of the courses have been become so much of a consumption experience that you're at the point where even the lecturer could die and no one would notice. <laughs> because the the students are just, oh, pre-recorded video, pre-recorded this, pre-recorded yeah. that. So you can't possibly expect community, creativity, collaboration to come out of this. So broadly speaking, here's my idea, right? Yep. Throw it all in the bin. All of it. The Just whole thing. It all away. Everything. Okay. Even the learning management system. Okay. Every single bit of it you throw in the bin. Except for one thing, which is the fact that you have a list of students who are enrolled in the course. Okay. That's your new starting point. And now what we want to do is take a different approach and go Remember the first thing that we talked about? Inspiration, collaboration, shared experiences. And we need to ask ourselves every single time we do something, everything that we create as part of the learning design, does it answer to those questions? Mm. One of the first things I started doing was I moved over to Digital Ink and I've got a digital ink device in front of me here and I'm waving a digital <laughs> stylus here at the waving screen. Waving a stylus at me, yep. And uh, I started doing all of those notes that I do in class, which are calculations in a shared notebook. Mm. Now, what that means is that it's like co-authoring a document, so it's in one note. I'm writing something down and as I write it, it's appearing on the student's screen, which they might have in front of them or they might not. But 
it's the very, very beginning of this idea that we are creating something collaboratively. So the next semester, it moved to the idea of instead of just having a lecture recording, what if it was a live stream? So now, even if you weren't in the room, you're watching a live stream, you've, you're a co-owner of a digital ink document, and you can also write questions and comments in the forum to do with this. So now what you have is a live experience, and this is a big accessibility point as well. Mm. It doesn't matter if you're in the lecture theatre, it doesn't matter if you're home, you can watch it after the fact, but you own the document, it's being co-authored and co-created, and when I do a worked problem, I ask my students, I say, okay, what's the first step? What should I do? Somebody says something, even if it's wrong, I'm going to go forward and I'm going to start solving it the wrong way. And then I'll get stuck and I say, okay, what's happened here? Someone else is going to say, okay, well, you know, you can't solve this because of reason X. Because a, a lot of people know that lectures are recorded, for example. Yes, but they're not recorded in the way that you're talking about. So how radical a shift in direction was what you were doing at the time? Um, I, d- I don't, like, I don't think it's radical. I think it's subtle, actually. Everything starts off very subtly. The, the fact that if even if you're watching online, you can watch online live and ask a question. The, the way we solve problems that is inclusive rather than prescriptive These all start off as very, very subtle differences. But the point is, is that we want to rebuild everything on this basis of collaboration, cooperation, and inclusivity as well. We haven't actually talked very much about the actual technology itself. No, I'd love to know the key features of it and what, what exactly it is that you're delivering and in what way is it different. Okay, so I told you before that I scrapped everything except one thing. You just threw it all away. Threw it away. Yep. The list of students. Okay. Now, that list doesn't even live in our learning management system. It lives in our student information system. So the first problem I had was, okay, I've got this OneNote notebook and I want to share it with my students. Mm. So I need to synchronize a group within Office with the student information system. So what you do is you stand back and say, what platforms are there? What are we going to build on top of? Now, after that, you have to say, well, what are you doing? Well, we're a university. We're preparing a student workforce. We're preparing people to go in and have a career. What is the most ubiquitous platform in business? It's Microsoft Office, 95% of Fortune 5 companies, whatever. You know the statistics. Everyone uses Office and we use it. And every university in the world basically uses it. Mm. So now... I could create a notebook and say, share it with my class, done, one step. Enrollment changes, anything, those get synchronized. In 2017, something happened, which was that there was a appearance of a new kind of software and Microsoft responded with something called Teams. Now, the great thing about Teams is that we just got it automatically. It just got delivered to our tenant without any extra subscription or payment or having to ask IT to buy our 
32nd piece of software, it just automatically got delivered and it is a scalable piece of software. Which for lots, lots of people, that's really important because we want to be making sure that it's efficient as possible. So if you can use something that is already available for yes. you, that's fantastic. Yes, and I think we should have less software, not more software, mm-hmm. by the way. Creativity and playing to your strengths should never be underestimated, especially when it comes to building community. Not everyone can write code or build a bot. And what worked for David might not work in other contexts, but that doesn't mean we can't learn from what he's doing, assessing his strengths, taking stock of available resources and getting creative. What's so interesting about David's story is that even in a resource-rich environment like a university, there are still barriers to finding community. While the resources were always there, David connected the dots in an innovative way to bring students and teachers together. In today's world, creativity is seen as an important economic, social and intellectual resource. And community development practitioners too are placing more emphasis on the importance of creativity and resourcefulness in building sustainable communities. Sometimes it's about looking at what a community already has going for it and using those strengths to address challenges. What David did might be seen in part as an example of what social work scholars Lightfoot, McCleary and Lum describe as asset mapping, a process in which a community explores, describes and maps its strengths and resources and then uses them to develop solutions to a specific issue within the community. When we get creative with available resources, we're well on our way to improving and strengthening our communities. Did the stu- did you have to do much um, communication with the student bef- the students before you made this change? How did the students I get on board? St- I stood at the podium in a lecture and I said, "Hey, everyone, we're going to use Teams. Let me show you how to use it." And I was clicking through and they all started laughing because they were already posting and it's appearing <laughs> on the screen behind me. So it took them all of about literally about fifty seven seconds yep. to find the software download the app, sign in, find the form and start posting. Mm. So what I experienced with that group was a 10 times increase in the number of posts per student. Literally just like that? Right. Immediately? Almost immediately. So in real terms, that means that you go from 400 posts a semester to 4,000 posts a semester. That's huge. It's a big number. Mm. And I noticed that it was predominantly dominated by here is a thread and there would be one post, zero reply or one post, one reply. And so this is, hey, I'm really stuck on this problem. I don't know how to solve it. Zero replies. It's the first and last question a student ever asked on the forum. Mm. And your your reaction to that is exactly my reaction. really not what we want to be. Which is sad. Mm. Because what have you witnessed there? You witnessed a student reaching out, engaging, wanting to learn something, wanting to learn more, it not being supported or reciprocated, and that dying in them. Now, when you post and you don't get a reply, you don't ever post again. And for a lot of students, even asking that question is a big deal. You might be 
completely new at university. You don't know anybody else here. You put yourself out there. You're worried, you know, are other people going to think that, you know, I don't understand this. You ask the question and then to not get a response. The worst thing that can happen is that someone reaches out and you don't take the opportunity to engage with that person. So how do you manage that when you're getting 4,000 comments? And that was the question I mm. asked. And I got a grant from Cognitive Services to build a bot. And I thought about it for a long time. And the first thing that we think of when we hear the word chatbot mm. is that you log into your website for Telstra or your insurance company or a car insurance, car hire company, whatever, and a little thing goes, bling, hi, my name is Alex, I'm here to help you. And, and it's we a, all ignore it. a stock photo of someone yeah. with a headset on, <laughs> with their head tilted, and yes, we ignore it. And yep. in fact, if anything, our heart sinks. So let's think back to that um, charter about humanistic education mm. and connection and community. Mm. How could you build a bot, which is something that has traditionally been deployed to replace human interaction and use it to enhance human interaction? So I have about 500 students in my classes mm. and each of the students is in a particular tutorial group with a particular tutor. So what if rather than having forums devoted to particular tutorial groups, I go, no, no, no. I want all the conversation to happen in one place because there's so much value and content there. Mm. But I want to curate and orchestrate it very carefully so I make sure I never miss a question. So I created a bot and I called it question. Yep. And the idea was simply that you tag the bot question. So you go, I have a at question or I'm stuck on at question 3.15. And in fact, it auto-completes. When you type at Q, it's got question and you can hit spacebar. So it's easier to tag question than to write the word question. This is a below zero entry point for engaging. Mm. Now, what does the bot do? It looks at which tutorial group you're in and it tags your two tutors. And those tutors have Teams, the modern platform. They get a ping on their mobile phone, a notification, I support my tutors and I pay them a certain number of hours per week to make sure that they're really happy with the idea that they are answering questions. I'm mm. not just, you know, exploiting their goodwill or anything. And then the tutors anywhere, anytime might see that question and answer. And if they don't, it's like a service ticket. It's a question with the status of unanswered. And when they do answer it or when a peer answers it, the way we close that service ticket is to say, this is the answer. So we've built a system that correctly connects the students to the correct tutor. This is about connecting people yep. instead real of replacing people it. Behind the bot. We're making sure that we attend to every instance of a student reaching out, but also importantly, we are providing value. So you could post it to your private Facebook group and hope that one of your mates answers or gives you the right answer, or you could post it here and be certain that mm. you're going to get a really good piece of advice. Now, after some time using this, my TAs came back to me and they said, oh, we've actually started waiting a few minutes before we answer because we often find that other students are coming in and answering each other's questions. Mm. Now, why is this happening? Because 
they can open their phone every five minutes throughout the day, just like they can Instagram, and there's something new there. So they're seeing all of the different questions coming up from all the different students. They're getting replies. They're getting people like liking their question because other people have the same question. So, and that's really dynamic that they're then helping each other learn. That's creating that really collaborative learning community. Yes. Now, to put this into context, our learning management system, if you post, it doesn't appear on the forum for 30 minutes. Mm. And if someone replies, it doesn't appear for 30 minutes. So the absolute ideal perfect minimum is you post a question and there'll be an answer in one hour from now. That's the best case scenario. Who waits for that kind of response time anymore? So I look at the average thread. It goes back and forth every three to five minutes. Bang, 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 bang. Now, that means a student is sitting at their desk. They're working on a problem. They ask the question, and it's happening in real time. They haven't even put their pen or pencil down. Mm. So the next step after that was, well, actually, I've got a channel that is based on every single topic, and I'm going to collect all of these question and answer pairs, and I'm going to put it in a knowledge base, and I'm going to curate that per topic as a study resource for the students. And secondly, I'm going to use all of that information to train the AI so that it's effectively learning from the collective intelligence of 500 students asking and answering questions. Second student asks a similar question to one that was two weeks ago Mm. that is, you know, five minutes of scrolling up the screen now. And the bot uses natural language processing and it goes, the question you've asked is similar to a question that Emily asked two Mm. weeks ago. Okay, Mm. And it says, it replies instead of the TA, and it says, I think I might have the answer to your question. You get a preview, you click on it, and it jumps you back to the other conversation. Now you've got the conversation between Emily, the TA, Bill, whoever, And you might type a follow-up question and go, hey, this was really helpful, but what happens in the case where X? Now, everybody that participated in that conversation is going to get a notification that says, someone replied to your comment. And what the AI has actually done is it's used a very large amount of technology to reconnect you with a learning community within a learning community, a group of people that were talking about a specific topic topic. within a specific course. Mm. So we can do something with AI, which is we can help build community, support learning, and reconnect humans to humans. What was the response or what has been the response from the students taking your course? Because they wouldn't be getting that same experience in other courses because what you're doing is pretty cutting edge in terms of how you're using this kind of tech. Um, The students have reported 100% in saying that they felt part of a learning community. So they have enjoyed the course more than any other course. They take other courses and they say to the academics, why aren't you doing this why aren't you using these tools so the the which i think is really important that they're actually then questioning other courses and saying hey Mm -hmm. why isn't it out there but it is also that idea that as educators we should be ahead of our students in terms of our 
technological abilities and our platforms. Mm. We should be teaching them about technology, not the other way around. So if you take that classic course where the students log into their learning management system, download their files, and then collaborate on Facebook and Google Docs or whatever, you are behind your students in technology. I think that for me is a, is a really interesting point, um, possibly a, a generational kind of shift that we're experiencing at the moment. My 15-year-old son said to me, we were watching a sci-fi movie, and he said to me, why is it that robots are always portrayed as evil? Why are they always the bad guys? Because from his perception, he's seeing all of this technology as something that is a helpful thing. So there is this kind of generational shift where we've, you know, got this kind of slight suspicion and wait, maybe it's down to movies like Terminator. I don't know. Mm. Um, but we've got this kind of slight suspicion of technology. There's lots of news reports that AI is going to take our jobs. You know, robots are going to take our jobs. Um, but at the same time, we're needing to to really adapt and to shift and to use that technology in a really positive way. And our students are learning to do that. And so they're wanting us to stay ahead of that game as well with them. There are these portrayals. There's a lot of fear, I think, around the idea of, oh, AI is going to take our jobs or whatever. But it's not really, okay? AI is an extension of the dishwasher. No one wants to wash the dishes. Put them in the dishwasher. And, we love dishwashers. Okay? And this is the purpose, right? This is mm. what progress of civilization and society is. It's to automate things that we don't really want to do that aren't high value so that we can have a richer society and a better quality of life. So I use the term humanistic AI. Mm. Now, I have not coined that term. It has been used by others, but I think it's been used in the wrong way. So, for example, the people that created Siri called it a humanistic AI, but it's not a humanistic AI. The idea that a voice assistant would say to you, oh, that must have been difficult, you go, oh, okay, well, the AI is being empathetic, but it's not a sentient being, so it's not empathy. And, I'm and shocked it's, now. It's, I'm upset because, you know, I like it when Siri says things like that. Yeah, but it's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. A, it's a mockery of the concept. It's mm. not humanistic yeah. AI. Yeah. Humanistic AI is to embrace the genuine concepts of human connection, empathy, and care. One of the things that we want to do is we want to use technology and AI to get rid of components of learning that were not meaningful, that didn't involve human intervention. And we want to save ourselves time so that as educators we can spend more time doing the things that matter, which is engaging with students, mm. being part of the community, uh, answering questions, helping people, reaching out, doing all of those very human things. So... How do you actually do that? Because it all sounds like nice platitudes and mission statements, but I'm an engineer and get down to brass tacks, we've got a problem to solve. Practical, gotta be practical. And not only does it have to be practical, but it also has to be scalable. Mm. We have to build systems that can be deployed, provisioned, scaled, managed, distributed. So, so there's a couple of different issues I'm interested in. One is is the privacy conversation because there'd be some people saying, well, you know, it's really important for us to keep personal information private and, you know, we need to be sensitive to those things. And then the kind of other end of that, which is actually the collaboration is presumably much more accessible for people. So it makes it much easier for people to engage yes. with education. Yeah. Um, so there's two questions there. One is about data 
and the other is about accessibility. Mm. So I talk about data first. Everything that I do, everything that I've built is aimed at the sole purpose of enriching and improving the educational experience. Now, in most cases, the data is already there. It's just a question of whether we use it or not. So does it just sit on a spreadsheet and get deleted a couple of years later? Is it sitting there somewhere in a software service and never accessed? Or do we aggregate all of that and bring it together and use it to help our ability to connect and reach out to that particular student? So I'll give you an example of that. I've got a large amount of information about my students that comes in about their interaction with parts of the course and whether they watched the video and how they've done in early assessment. And in fact, when I aggregate all of this for a particular course, I'll have about a million data points. It's very well organized. Everything falls within uh, data silos and it forms these things we call key value pairs, which directly connect correlations. For example, if a student watches a video and I know that that video is about a particular topic and then I have a mid-semester exam with a question that's about that specific topic, then I've got a very close and hard correlation between those two things. If a student watched a video and got a mark for a question, I've got unstructured data. So we have really good data like this and what I do is by around week four of trimester I train this against the previous year and I use it to predict students who are going to fail the course. Now it's not good for a student to fail the course. It costs them money, it sets back their educational experience, it also potentially sets an image of themselves as being a failing student and so for a cohort of about 500, this might predict, let's say, 20. And those 20 students, I will write to every one of them personally. And that's entirely manageable. And so, again, we're doing something very humanistic. We can use mm. this information to go, I'm able to find out something about the students, find out that they're struggling and reach out while it's early enough that it can still make a difference. And that is an incredible, um, incredibly useful data set for us to have access to. Because, yes. And that's not something, some people may assume that as educators we have access to that readily, but actually we don't. It's actually really quite difficult to get access to that kind of information. So what you're talking about, about that being combined with the learning management platform that you're using is actually quite revolutionary. And we also know that it's so important to be able to intervene in early in a student's experience. The earlier that you can catch somebody and reach out in the way yeah. that you're doing is really important. But that's that's kind of, that's a, a well, big and, deal. And I, I reach out to them just before census date. And that's when they can still drop a course. Now, this is really important. Sometimes people start, they enroll in three or four subjects and two weeks in, their granddad gets cancer or something happens. Now, there is no solution to that other than that at that particular moment, something else came into that person's life and they now have more than they can do. You know what the best thing is for that student? To drop one of their subjects and take it again next year and not pay for it or have fail on their transcript. 
So yeah, that is really important and it is very personal and humanistic and data is allowing me to do that. While there might be talk about an AI Armageddon where robots rule the world, humanistic artificial intelligence does have the potential to enhance, not replace, our participation in community. AI specialist Frank Chen argues that we needn't be worried about AI replacing human connection. Chen argues that combining humanity, AI capabilities will allow humans to focus on what humans do best, connecting and creating. Chen reasons that when machines can take care of mundane and routine tasks like scrolling through a forum, humans have more time, energy and attention for the kind of thinking that machines aren't good at, like empathy and creativity. It turns out that when humans and AI work together, they outperform humans or AI working in isolation. A Harvard Medical School study of human versus AI performance in cancer diagnosis found that the most accurate diagnoses came from humans working in partnership with algorithms. While it might seem counterintuitive that a bot is helping us to build real relationships, it seems that the opportunities are endless when we take a humanistic, creative approach and frame technology as a means to enhance rather than replace human connection. So you asked a second question, which was about accessibility. Now, firstly, this is one of the most important things there is in education because traditionally speaking, university can be a very privileged experience. It, if you think about all of your fellow students when you, the listener, or you, Rachel, did your degree, how many of them were mature age students? How many of them had a newborn baby? How many of them had a disability of some sort? And the answer is probably, oh, actually, I didn't know anybody. Now, the reason is, is because it wasn't actually really accessible to those people. And those people have a huge contribution to make and our society will be better for it. So how do we ensure that all of these people are Mm. able to do it? Mm. Not only are we inclusive in the educational experience, but it is entirely accessible to them. Now, The traditional answer has been, well, we have a disabilities unit or we've got special provisions. So an example is, let's say, I have dyslexia. I will get a letter saying that I'm diagnosed with dyslexia. I will go and I'll sit my exam and I'll be able to have a person sit next to me that reads the exam out or I'll get half an extra hour per hour or something. And these are called provisions or adjustments and they're supposed to be something that accounts for the diagnosis that you've provided with evidence. That's great. That's step one. But the ultimate solution to this is something called UDL or Universal Design for Learning. And in Universal Design for Learning, what we do is we make the provisions invisible. We make the experience work for everybody. Mm. Now, an e- I'll give you a really simple example. You go to an airport and is there a sign that says toilet this way? Or is there a universal symbol for the toilet that people can see 
with Braille under it usually, for even if you can't see, that indicates to people that speak any language where that is. Now, that is iconography and it's universal. When you write the word toilet, you're saying people who can speak English and read and can see are able to see this sign and it's not accessible to everyone else. Now, you didn't have to go, okay, if you get to the airport, you've got to get a letter saying that you only speak Spanish and we'll give you a special person (laughs) that walks through the airport with you and reads the signs out to you. (laughs) That's what we do in education. Or you can fundamentally design education so that it works for everybody. That's the principle of universal design for learning. Now, one of the fantastic things about not only technology but also about big tech is firstly the versatility of technological delivery And secondly, the fact that big tech has embraced accessibility in a really fantastic way. Mm. Let's take the lecture, for example. You come into the lecture, okay? You've already filtered out the, the woman that's got a baby and the person who has got carer responsibilities and has to take care of somebody or the person who has to work a job during the day to pay because their parents died and they're going to take care of their brothers and sisters. There's a whole group of people that you just filtered out. Mm. Okay. You sit down at the lecture. There's a fluorescent light above you. We're looking at one right now. You have sensory processing disorder or autism. And as a result, your brain processes the 50 hertz flicker as a hum. And you can't concentrate. Or you've got a vision impairment. And the lecturer is writing things down on screen, but you can't read it even if you sit in the front row. There's so many different barriers, barriers after barriers after barriers. And Mm -hmm. what you're left with is a bunch of fit and healthy 18 to 20-year-olds, you know, and that's exactly who all of your friends were when you went to uni because we filtered the rest of them out. So we have to design the system fundamentally so that without a letter, without a provision or an adjustment, it is accessible to everybody. Now, the lecture recording's great, except for the fact that you're not interacting anymore. You can't put up your hand and answer a question. Mm. I already told mm. how uh, that was solved. What about you've got a hearing impairment? Okay, well, my lecture system, I don't use our default lecture recording system at the university. I use Stream, which is on Office 365 that's free, And it can do real-time live transcription. And it can do it in a different language. And it's a searchable transcript. So now I am producing universal design for learning that exceeds the baseline of 100% of Australian universities. And that makes a... I would imagine that would make a huge difference to somebody's confidence, to being at university and feeling that all of those issues have been resolved yes. for you, you're just like anybody else coming yes, to this Yes, because there's stigma involved mm. in provisions. And I also get a lot of students who, you, you know, these days it's very common for Gen Zs to be very open about the idea of mental health and depression, but they don't want to go to the disabilities unit with a diagnosis and be labelled they just want to get on with their life and they mm. want to and often they'll come up to me very openly and they'll say oh dr kellerman you know something 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 and i'll just work with them personally one on one to solve their problem but we intentionally often have to usurp the formal systems because of the stigma that is involved with them yeah 
And I think the, the way you're describing all of the things you're using, everything that you talk about in terms of how that technology is enabled, it's always coming back to that human connection, always yes. coming back to you being able to provide a much more personalised service for individual students that then enables them just to access the education that um, they're entitled to in a way that anybody else would, but also that's building those connections between the students as well, so enabling them to then feel part of that learning community. And what I'm really struck with about the way that you're talking about that is your energy and your passion for not only the teaching, but actually what you're creating here. Has building this kind of reinvigorated you in terms of how you're teaching and opened up all of those possibilities about the kinds of things that you can do in the future to help your students? Yeah, I think it has particularly, uh, I guess, the change for me is that I went from going, well, I'm an educator and my boss is, well, I actually have 500 bosses and it's all of my students, mm -hmm. right? Which is that I want to provide them the best learning experience. I feel a moral responsibility to shepherd them into what I think is a meaningful and fruitful career. Mm. Now, in doing so, I thought, okay, I'm doing all of this just because I want to give them the best experience I can. But after a couple of years of doing this, I must admit that my view now has broadened. And I think now actually I want to build a global community of people who want to collaborate and work together to make higher education better. And these days I collaborate with lots of other universities. I collaborate with big technology companies. Um, I work with a lot of people at Microsoft, for example. So if I want something fixed, I could fix it for my course or I could talk to Microsoft and get them to fix mm. it for every person on planet Earth that uses the software. And so the latter is much more impactful. It's so exciting as well to yeah. feel that you are part of that huge global community Yes, and being able to influence. So you're, you're one teacher being able to influence uh, the whole field of higher education, yeah. which is amazing. And, well, and I would like that to grow. So that is my big project now. Mm. Yep. So what David's talking about is that every member of a community has something valuable to contribute. So it's really important that any barriers that limit people's participation are addressed. Spatial economics experts Reggiani, Nedgecamp and Lanzi describe accessibility as the degree to which a product, device, service or environment is accessible by as many people as possible. In the case of the communities that David has been cultivating, tech has helped community to become more accessible and ultimately more inclusive. Dalton and a team from Cape Town and San Diego universities explain that the universal design philosophy that David's been employing recognizes that people have different needs. The aim is to promote design that's flexible, simple, intuitive, and above all equitable when it comes to use. The truth is, Reducing barriers to participation benefits everyone. And David is doing this by maximizing the potential of technology. So we're coming to just my final couple of questions for you today. Um, 
Both of these questions. So one of these questions actually is something that I love to ask everybody that I talk to about community. Um, I love to ask people whether building community is in their job description. And if it isn't, should it be? It is genuinely and authentically something that every person at this university should be working towards. Mm. So I talk to people across this entire university. I talk to the print services manager. I talk to the uh, software admins. I talk to people across a very, very broad range at this university. And the reason is, is that to deliver this level of integrated experience, everyone needs to be working towards this goal. The educator cannot do it alone. It has to be in the DNA of the entire platform. Now, there are lots of examples of that. So one description I have for myself is a relentless integrator, right? So I believe that when the student opens up the software for their course, that communication should be wrapped around every part of it, that everything should be a shared, authentic and collaborative experience, but also that we should aggregate all of the information and leverage it against one another. That's so powerful as well. If all the teachers at this university saw themselves as being relentless integrators, the access to the amazing, powerful information we would have to be able to help people to learn better, to get more from their educational experience, um, could be really quite transformational. So everything that you've talked about, I mean, we're obviously very much focused on the higher education space, but for people who work in different sectors who might be listening to this podcast, what are the things that you would say would be transferable? So just in terms of your approach to technology and how you've taken that very humanistic view of technology and how you're creating that really personalized experience, are there things that other people might want to think about and, and learn from the way that you've approached it? Okay, so I think about my class as I've got a team of 500 people Mm. and our course is blank. We're going to create the material together collaboratively. Everything is going to be co-authored. Everything's going to be authentic. We make the recordings, the conversation, the digital ink, the documents, everything we do together as a team. What are the key words though? You know, it's got to be multimodal. It's got to be fast, authentic, inclusive, collaborative. I mean, y- you need to provide value and and reasons for people to be there and I guess we're just reduce friction. You know, every time you leave an experience and jump into another experience, like log into a website mm. to do your travel investment or yep. whatever, you stop doing the thing you were doing. Mm. So relentless integration as well. Be really smart about it. Relentlessly integrate. One final question for you. Um, I love to ask podcast guests what they might do if they swapped their job for a day with somebody else who I've interviewed. And the other day I was interviewing a really fabulous humanitarian social entrepreneur. Um, and, And he has created a business which is absolutely integrated into his community and supports the ongoing sustainability of his community. If you were going to do his job for a day, what would you take with you from what you've learned here at the university into that job for the day? He works with community on humanitarian sustainability. Yeah. Well, what I would do is I would try and increase the mind share of what he does. I would 
try to get people interested and excited about what they can achieve. Uh, I would foster optimism about making change. And yeah, I, I would basically try and grow that group. I would be on the library lawn getting students involved and um, I would be trying to build the exposure of it because, you know, human power is the most powerful thing we have people power right so growth would be my answer thank you so much david for your time it's been a fascinating conversation from my perspective i really just really want to get on board with your optimism i think and how you've embraced technology to find that human connection and to build that human connection to provide more opportunities for people to connect but also to learn and to really open up the access for them and their careers and their future lives. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that optimism um, with me today. Thank you for inviting me here, Rachel. Thank you so much, David, for that conversation today. It's always fantastic to talk to other people at the university who are really interested in building community and are doing creative things to make that happen. And it's always fantastic to hear a teacher who is so passionate and motivated to bring the best possible educational experience to their students. So much to take from our conversation today, but here are my top three takeaways. Number one... Don't keep your passion to yourself. Share with others what motivates you and give them the tools to pass this passion on. Number two, play to your strengths. Resources are often hard to come by. Sometimes we can overlook the ones we already have. So join the dots and get creative. And number three, don't be scared of the robots. Think about how technology can reduce barriers to participation and make time for a more connected human community. Thank you for listening to this episode. Make sure you head over and follow me at Rachel Abel on Facebook or Rachel Abel underscore on Twitter. You can find snippets and additional content on the Missing Piece YouTube channel and all other kinds of posts on our Instagram at tmp.podcast. I'm Rachel Abel, Head of Making Friends, and you've been listening to The Missing Piece.